Welcome back to another Bite Side, the show about tech, games, digital culture, and how it all fits into all of our lives and the world around us. We don't just talk about this stuff in a really vague way of new things and pretending that they don't exist within our actual world. And boy, howdy, today is there some discussion <laughs> about how technology is kind of taking over uh, the world around us. Uh, but joining me as always is Nick. How are you? I'm really good. That's the best explanation of what we do. I feel like I know more about the podcast now, so thanks for that. <laughs> You're welcome. It's funny. I've been refining what even the concept of Biteside <laughs> is through the process of interviewing people to come join us and and do more <laughs> writing stuff alongside us all. And hopefully that will all be revealed very, very soon. Very exciting times. Um, but for now, it's it's still just us sitting around talking about <laughs> things. Um, but I want to hear about you doing a running festival that was not a that was not breaking the rules of uh, pandemic uh, social gatherings. <laughs> yeah, look, every year Dubbo has the Dubbo Stampede Running Festival because it's actually illegal in Dubbo to have anything that doesn't reference the zoo at some point. Right. <laughs> um, and normally it's absolutely huge. It's it's massive. And, of course, they couldn't do it this year and there was a lot of concern about what that was going to mean. It's a big deal. People love it. They did a virtual running festival. It was a very cute idea. Essentially, you had a couple of days window, go and do your run, do your chosen category, and then upload your results. So a bit of an honour system, which yep. I, I would love to believe and I do believe that everyone was on board with. Because of that, they had to take away some of the big prizes, so it's yeah. lucky door prize, not things like that. But 1,000 people registered, That's and really I think cool. that is amazing. Like the fact that it actually went off, people around the world got involved in oh, it. Oh, um, that's extra cool, Yeah. Yeah, really cool. I did the Dingo Dash, which is the 5.3 kilometres. That's the smallest one you can do. Um, I hate running, but this was just a lot of fun. I just got out on Sunday morning in my own time, in my own, picked my own course. Yep. And I just had a really wonderful run and then uploaded my, um, uh, God, what app do I use? Map My Run. Just uploaded okay. that later on. And it was just great. It was, I saw other people. We were all safely distant because it's Dubbo. I was actually running beside a couple of kangaroos that were beside me for a while because, <laughs> hey, that's where I live. They just, um, they just want to show off that they could beat you without breaking oh, the sweat. They weren't even paying attention to what I was doing. It was hilarious. <laughs> um, and I think what's great is, there's a lot we can't do, and I'm watching organisations come up with incredibly smart ways of making sure we can still do it. So huge shout-out to the people who did that. Um, I think it was a lot of fun. Um, I, while I want to do a proper one next year, I was really glad that I could actually get involved. Yeah, and look, I I really do feel like we're starting to see things speed up with people now kind of moving beyond i guess you know just tr just really quickly doing whatever they can to still have a thing and starting to find smarter new ways to sort of still hold digital versions of events um because i've seen it sort of on a few different fronts um with conferences and things where they're starting to you know do things in sort of different ways um obviously what in a couple of weeks there's the whole pax online thing where, you know, it's unifying the Aussie version and the overseas versions into this, like, 24-7, 10 days of nonstop panels and it's events. It's going to be 
Amazing. And, you know, full kudos to, to the PAX team, including Luke, who we used to work with, yep. being quite honest that, you know, they're not entirely sure how this is going to work, yeah. but they didn't want this to not have a crack at it. And I yeah. think that's fantastic. And look, I noticed, you know, a couple of weekends ago would have, well, back in early August, actually, that would have been the normal time for um, City to Surf. And it's like the first time in its history oh. it wasn't able to run. Um I think it was actually meant to be the 75th anniversary. Like, so it was kind of a really big oh, milestone no. year. Um, but they put out a thing on the day it was meant to happen that was launching their version of a virtual run. Um, and I think that's going to happen, you know, in a couple of months. And I think they were still trying to get people to embrace all the charity aspects that they would normally have supported um, through the kind of the virtual run that they are setting up. So, yeah, like it does. It seems that lots of people are really... It's like they've refined how do we still do it and and not make it just look like it's a crappy you know, <laughs> alternate. It's like, yeah, it's not as good as it could be, but how do we then just find other fun ways to give people that chance? Like I love the idea that people were able to do it from overseas. That's really cool. I think that's fantastic. And not to get sidetracked on this, but of course not every organisation can do that. I spoke to Legacy this week. It is Legacy Week. Normally they'd be doing all the fundraising, selling the pins, the full work, school kids going around. They can't do any of that. And just Legacy in Dubbo, that's going to cost them about $30,000 that they don't make. Yeah, that is. And, yeah, you're right. And that hurts. That's such a traditional door knocking, standing outside, malls all that stuff so yeah that's a really tricky one to fix yeah very tricky but again you know you and i keep on this refrain and again don't want to get stuck into it but this is one of my favorite topics we've got to stop thinking about when things get back to normal yeah we've got to embrace this as normal and it's great to see people doing that yeah absolutely um and look i wanted to sort of tie off a loose end but it leads into next uh, the the main topic for today and it was when you threw out the classic evil word when it comes to <laughs> you know the discussion of big silicon valley giants in this context it was apple i always it just it kind of really gets me in the gut cuz i'm like going no apple is not those kinds of they're not like google and facebook <laughs> <laughs> which we'll get to <laughs> shortly. Um, but one of the things I think that stood out for me in uh, you know, in what's been going on, I think, is Apple is always absolutely fixated on controlling its own platform. And I think that's that's where it then is running into the problems that it's having right now. Because, you know, back in the day, being so focused on controlling absolutely everything about how it worked it's like it wasn't it wasn't quite as big a deal when when they were you know a a, a small percentage of the pc market and the laptop market and all that when it's like the iphone then took over the world reset the concept of smartphones they become dominant in sort of a western market sense of you know the certainly the high end users who do spend money on platforms and therefore the developers who are attracted to try to make a living as you know substantial revenue generating businesses um they're kind of the biggest game in town in that regard and that's where this control has really started to you know to now really kind of consistently cause itself problems um there's you know been sort of more of these kinds of debates over the last few days because i think People have started to notice rules that have existed for a while, but they've started to notice them uh, rubbing against other issues. Like uh, someone discovered that um, 
oh, people can buy ads through, you know, for like for Facebook, for Instagram through their app, but like, but buying those ads doesn't have to go through the Apple marketplace. And they're like, oh, this is some huh. like special dispensation again for another big thing. Whereas apparently it sits kind of in this other little carefully uh, carved out set of rules about the fact that, well, you're not buying, you know, you're not buying a product to use in the app. You're buying you know, a service from that company that you know, you're essentially now in a kind of business to business relationship because you're buying an advertisement that runs in some other place that's got nothing to do with Apple. But it's the fact that all these inconsistent rules are kind of being raised again and again and again. But to not kind of go down that wormhole specifically, I thought that that idea of controlling the platform and kind of one of the, my earlier arguments about the fact that I, you know, I've always been happy to watch them trying to carve out privacy as one of their big uh, spaces where they're kind of selling you, the customer who buys the phone, a service in in a certain regard. Is that in iOS fourteen, the next version, Facebook has basically had to uh, release a warning to some of its advertising partners because the next version, yeah, iOS 14, has a new control over third-party data sharing. So like, you know, if uh, the classic thing being device fingerprinting, basically. So, you know, when they're able to use Mm -hmm. a device identifier to then track your activities across different applications, uh, Uh. Apple's introducing a new system that means that that identifier won't kind of just be uniformly consistent across every single app. There'll be, you know, separate, each app will kind of get their own version of it and it won't be able to to share that piece of data with some other app. And in this context, it's that idea of saying, you can't share that with a third party to then know that this is the same person to target with ads based on the same user profile that exists over on Facebook's information. And Facebook's had to kind of go, so like this new rule uh, might actually reduce the effectiveness of our ads on our partner advertising networks by about 50%, which is a pretty huge hit to the effectiveness of how their uh, ad targeting might actually work. That is a huge amount of money. Yeah. And it's that idea. And, you know, one of the interesting things in the statement from Facebook was, uh, Facebook basically saying it was like a carefully worded thing where they kind of, it seems like they were implying that they're going to use some other identification means. Uh, so almost implying that they'll find their way around it and find some other thing that they can use to lock onto customers. Um, and look, it might be even something as simple as, you know, finding a way that across those partner networks that there's some kind of web-based check-in that means they can then start to generate, you know, a separate kind of code system. But it it kind of brings us back to that whole discussion then about, you know, Apple does keep trying to sort of find those ways to firm up a bit more of that uh, privacy end of things. But, of course, we keep seeing that the likes of uh, Facebook and Google, whose business is very much about selling ads, uh, yes. they keep wanting to make sure that they find their way around 
giving us as much personal control over our privacy as is humanly <laughs> possible <laughs> or as, as digitally possible. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just going to be an ongoing debate. And it, what always strikes us, and I think, you know, you you have touched on this quite a lot, how much we don't know about what we're giving away, how much we don't care about what we're giving away. You know, you and I, we've worked on this, we've talked about it, we've looked into it, we have an understanding of it. But people who don't understand it awful often also just don't care because what they're getting is an incredible experience and that's actually what's important. Yeah, yeah. And like, yeah, so one of the big things I've really started to kind of come back around to, and it's something I know, it's been years since I was really thinking about that idea of uninformed consent yeah. a lot before. And it was that that thing of, yep, we've all given our consent, but did we really know what we were giving away? The fact that people have had... You know, like it's like it is directly attached to this idea of consent, the idea that people then kind of wonder if their phone is listening to them because the ads are so uncanny that it couldn't possibly be that it's only based on these incredible webs and meshes of (laughs) data that have been mined about us and about our friend connections because that's the other part of it, of course, is knowing who our friends are and then what their data sets are and the ways in which those interrelated data sets might suggest that we're also now interested in something because someone very close to us in our network has become more interested in something. So that's when people go, oh, I never even typed that thing in, but now I'm seeing ads about it. Um, It's like all of this, I actually do feel like becomes really tied up in this debate over uh, the media bargaining code here in Australia and the ways in which I kind of, you know, and we've talked about it a little bit before, but it's like I keep feeling like it's targeting the wrong thing. And I've started to really come back to that idea that I feel like advertising regulations and data regulations are the things that would essentially mean the ads wouldn't be so cheap uh, if they weren't able to just automatically sell millions of ads, including thousands of scams every single day that constantly just keeps slipping through the net because it's all automated for them. And it means that they're, you know, they're able to just point those ads at any kind of target. And of course, we're even seeing political issues related to that kind of granular targeting. But it's all because it's so automated and that when the issue of these scams gets then thrown at these sorts of companies, they kind of just figure that shrugging and saying, but how could we possibly monitor everything when there's millions of ads? It's like, well, actually, that's your job. And the only Mm. reason the ads are so cheap is because you refuse to put enough people to monitor these things onto it. There is a real sense for some of these companies that their platform, uh, if you listen to them, has just got away from them. It's just so big. What are we expected to do? Well, it's your product. The platform is your product. What we expect is for you to have an understanding and a control over your product. It'd be like someone saying, you know, our snack foods are just so popular. We can't help if iron filings get in them all the time. (laughs) There's just, we're making so many. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, that is actually a really clear analogy because it is that thing you're going, at what point do people get to, you know, just give up responsibility? It's like, you know, there was all back in the 2008 um, financial crisis, there was all those discussions of banks being too big to fail and have to be bailed out and all those kinds of things. 
And it just feels like that the way that these companies have emerged in an unregulated environment, you know, that it really was that magical Wild West that was the early internet, except, (laughs) you know, in a lot of regards, most people were kind of playful and joyful and fun in that time. And then some people started to build massive businesses, but businesses that really lent on the idea that there were no regulations and you know, mining people's data in exchange for giving them a free service that they could hang out with their friends on or that they could easily search the web with, um, it all felt kind of fine at the time. But if if we had very clearly been told, so by the way, you know, you uh, will, by giving up your details in these ways, uh, this will mean you will be tracked everywhere you go on the internet. It isn't just while you're typing in things on this service because these companies are actually setting up uh, you know, when you get told there's a cookie on a website, uh, some of those cookies will be from Facebook and Google. They're tracking everything you look at, everywhere you go. Um, and eventually this will start to devalue all forms of advertising across both digital and offline spaces. Uh, and it will eventually impact on the entire viability of uh, trusted journalism. Are you cool with that? <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting. You touched on this. Do you actually genuinely think this is a hangover of that dot-com Wild West? I mean, yeah, right? Like they got to write their own rules. And it's that feeling where, yeah, like Web 2.0 was kind of that idea of we started to move from just people publishing things to people building applications. Uh, It started to really turn it into this, you know, sort of very, like even that shift, I guess, from, Right, sort of a lot of Web 1.0 was still that idea of if it was a business, it was e-commerce. It was just how do we sell people things on the internet? But then as it became applications on the internet, that really did, I felt like it really did start to be that space then when no one had really made the rules properly yet. So, you know, and the likes of Uber and, and Airbnb and all these things where like it was kind of, there's so much more physical uh, infrastructure attached to it, you know, cars driving around on the roads or using, uh, you know, people's houses instead of hotels, that it became kind of clear in a civic sense that these things actually needed a bit more regulation and it still only came along after the fact. And, you know, those fights are still playing out in a lot of <laughs> regards. Um, but because data, I think, is so much more, you know, it is, it's just floating around out there in the cloud somewhere and everyone seems to be okay with the fact that their data is being used in these ways. But it's like it's having these impacts on such a wider scale. And it's that's kind of that feeling that I have about it is that it is not, I feel like the argument isn't that they owe, you know, that Facebook and Google owe money to media companies based on the news traffic that goes through them every day right now, I feel like they kind of owe them money for the news traffic data that went through them for the past 10, 15 years, which was a big part of building these granular profiles of all of us. Because if someone is sharing a link about a news item that is related to technology, then that is a marker that that person is interested in technology. If if that person was sharing a news item, like they're not just tracking that the person shared a news item from the Sydney Morning Herald or that they shared a news item from the ABC, they're tracking what that news was about, you know? And so that's kind of the granularity that that these people have built their services on. 
And when we chose to follow the pages of news websites, because in those earlier days, that would mean we would receive notifications on like new updates. And of course, that slowly faded away. And it was almost, I almost feel like they kind of mined what they needed. And then it became less important to them over time because they now had the data they needed already. And we keep, you know, all the kind of lip service to supporting uh, you know, news media. Someone had a, pointed out two years ago, Campbell Brown, who, you know, was uh, the main person quoted from Facebook regarding this latest uh, decision that they might just pull up stumps and not not allow any news sharing within Australia, whether global or local, um, that two years ago they basically were th- you know, a veiled threat to the news media industry saying, you really do need to start working with this or your future is hopeless. You know, it's like, mm, this is, you know, where's this power dynamic exactly? And if that's your kind of tactics, then something needs to change. I just feel like for a long-term win, it's not about just trying to squeeze out a few dollars. It's about actually saying this wildly deregulated advertising industry is in unfair competition with a highly regulated advertising industry that doesn't operate at the same scale. Well, of course, the media inquiry when looking into this went a little deeper. And one of their arguments that I think carries a huge amount of water when we're talking about Australian media, talking about Facebook, talking about Google, is that the content being produced by Australian media has intrinsic value just by existing. It has intrinsic value to those platforms, and that is what they should be paying for as well. They are using a product. It's not just the ad revenue. It's the fact that this is something that actually exists to have worth on its own bat. Yeah, and look, somebody actually, uh, Jason Kint, I think it was, an American uh, person who works in sort of the promotion of like the future of trusted content is the way uh, you know, they put it for their organisation. Um, he noted, uh, you know, in responding to what's happening in Australia right now that when uh, a journalist, Kevin Ruse, was doing like a daily update of the top 10 shared news articles on Facebook on a daily basis and was pointing out how those top shared articles were actually heavily conservative in bias, um, people from Facebook finally responded to that and actually sort of said, oh, we don't think that's the best metric for looking at sort of what's most important and what's like what's being most engaged with on Facebook. Actually, a better metric is reach. And they kind of showed what articles might be like reaching further on a particular day. But here's that thing is that reach is not related to uh, how many people are like clicking back through to an article on a news website, that purely relates to how many people have scrolled past it in their mm-hmm. news feed and have in some way, maybe they left a comment or something, but they didn't necessarily reshare that link. But suddenly, yeah, you're like, well, this is actually an argument in direct conflict with their other argument about how it's all about the clicks for the media industry and why don't they love the clicks they get? It's like, over here, they're basically saying that really it's an internal economy where, you know, as we know, most people, they see the headline, they see the little, you know, clipping or a Snippet. quote. 
and then they just kind of dive in and start talking about it and don't necessarily follow through. I'd love to see them be transparent about how often someone clicks a news article versus how many times they actually scroll past it and engage with it based on reach because I have a feeling that it's a lot less often than they'd like to admit. Yeah, it would be significantly less often. I, I note that one of the stats that came out while they were looking into this is that Google and Facebook account for just over 70% of the advertising money spent annually in Australia. That's yeah. how much they take out of it, and that is insane. But the other thing is when we talk about Google, there is still a, this idea that they are a search engine, and I think this is a, a fundamental shift. They are an answers engine. When you go to Google and type in a question, you actually expect to see an answer more than you expect to see a, a link to click on. And that means you are not clicking through if you can find in that snippet format that Google loves to use exactly the quote or the little tidbit of information that you were looking for. They have found ways to make you not click through and, and that's incredibly convenient for you and I understand why they want to do that. It's convenient for me. I'm not going to lie. It's really helpful but it's not great for the media organisations. Absolutely. And look, yeah, I, I think that is a huge one. I think that idea that it's in, it's now framed itself as the place you'll get the answer as well, totally a thing. And I think, yeah, I absolutely feel like, you know, that you know Google News as a sort of subsection where you can read headlines from lots of different places, it's like so many people probably just go there, glimpse all the headlines and go, great, I've caught up. I've seen everything I need to see. If they've bothered going there instead of just getting it all out of their Facebook feed, you know, or just checking the trends sidebar in Facebook or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, there was, I saw somebody uh, referred to a study by Stanford University last year that actually looked at a randomized study of people who uh, deactivated their Facebook. And it found that people, uh, they interacted with their family and friends more uh, during the deactivation. Oh, my God. <laughs> they they did become less informed about the sort of day-to-day fact-based news, which was interesting. Um, but they also became less polarized uh, in a political sense. Uh, and ultimately, it said that after the trial that... Uh, on the whole, they used Facebook a lot less. And it was just an interesting little kind of series of findings, particularly those questions of polarization and that that kind of little thing around being less informed. It's like, it's an interesting one to think, well, maybe it is that people would, you know, they're just picking up the news of the day through their Facebook feed. And it's not that they necessarily then dive straight back into replacing it. And this is actually, I think, one of the things that will be interesting because if this goes ahead and look, you know, with my well-known uh, animosity towards Facebook and what it <laughs> represents, I'd be fascinated. I, I kind of want to see that social experiment, but it might be that it really hurts um, in some regards, or it might be that actually it would only be like, maybe it'd be that if Google did it, that's the thing that would hurt the most. Um, to not get search They referrals. did it in Spain and it incredibly hurt. Uh, it, 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 they did it in Spain in 2014 yeah. and um, it uh, was absolutely devastating for the Spanish news media. Yeah. Um, I'd love to hear from stuff in New Zealand right now. It's been about two months since Oof. they stopped uh, actively sharing into Facebook. I'd love to think about, you know, whether or not they feel like that's been an interesting experiment one way or the other. 
Um, but yeah, part of me sort of wonders if, and certainly, I mean, right when it's a self-selecting bias, but you read the comments on like the Australian article, like the news media articles here in Australia about yesterday's Facebook announcement. And of course, those comments are largely going, yeah, well, piss off Facebook. We don't want to, you know, we'll, yeah, but it's like, well, you're already on a news website. You've, you've kind of chosen that you already go there, whereas it's more those other people. Um, and I sort of wonder if that qualitative aspect of people's feeds might, it might not be, you know, maybe in that first month or so, it is that people just kind of slowly notice that they're now just getting all the drunk uncle opinions in their feed and nothing else. Um, and then they start to kind of rub their eyes and think, maybe I should go back to that website I used to go to to get my news instead of imagining it's going to reappear here anytime soon. But I, I kind of want to see that yeah. social experiment. It has just struck me. You talking about .com before. I think you're right. I think we can go back and lay a lot of the issues that we are seeing now on that Wild West. And one of the biggest issues is expecting free content. If you remember, website, uh, sorry, newspapers were incredibly scared about going online because there was a concern it would devalue the news. It has. Yeah. A newspaper used to be a product that you bought and you didn't expect to get it for free. There were free press, obviously, but, you know, generalistically, if you were buying a broadsheet or a tabloid, you were spending money to get that paper. Paywalls, people do nothing but rant about them. They're incredibly upset about them. And that is because I think in where we understand a digital-based economy, I think that that style of capitalism we are learning is fundamentally incompatible with a functioning free press. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a tough one. It's going to be a problem. Um look, you know, I'll say out loud now that um once yeah, we have some more team members coming on involved with Byteside, I am going to launch a voluntary kind of membership system uh as a way to, you know, cuz I think paywalling, you know, on a little tiny website, it it doesn't necessarily work, but trying to create a sense of community around supporting it and the idea that everybody who will be writing will be paid to write, um, I think is something that hopefully, you know, a small number of people can get behind and and help it to just get enough to, you know, to to build something small that can sustain itself. <laughs> and so that's, yeah, that's that's the hope. Um, but, you know, when you pay your to, content creators, yeah, whether yeah. you're a boss or you're a consumer, Pay your content creators. Yes. Yeah. Not just ask anyone else. When you see the pop-up thing, think, what could I throw them, even if it's just one month? It can make a huge difference. All right. Massively. Nick, let's talk about your latest customer service fiasco. Oh, oh my Lord. Not <laughs> mine, yet, thank God. But I'm like... No, no, I think you will love this. So this is a co-worker of mine, Lucy. She's our rural reporter. She's fantastic. Uh, one of the best I've worked with, but she has been sharing an email her mother got. Now, oh. her mum had bought something online. She'd gone and said, I haven't got it yet. And this email is just remarkable. It's got a kind of rough poetry to it. So I'm just going to read it. Hi, Jane. All the carriers are broken. All the airlines are bankrupt. The US post system is falling apart at the seams. There is nothing we can do. It may take weeks to get your package. It only gets gets worse from here. All the best, 
Roger. <laughs> that is beautiful. What were the first two it's lines gorgeous. again? All the carriers are broken. All the airlines are bankrupt. Someone needs to write a folk song based on this. It's so good. Oh, my that is, my word, that is glorious. And that's a genuine customer service email that was sent back to an inquiry about where's my package. <laughs> the honesty is is gorgeous, but yeah, just the cadence of it, the yeah. rhythm. I just yeah, God bless you, Roger. You've actually made my day with yep. one of the bleakest emails I think I've ever read. Yeah. Oh my God. Seriously, I want to. Yeah, I want to find like a <laughs> Willie Nelson backing track and just just sit down by a campfire and. And sing a little ditty about how all the carriers are broken, all the airlines. And only gets worse from here. (laughs) All right, have you got a tip for us today? I do. My weird little tip is if you have ever had a a weird experience where people are trying to send you Google Calendar invitations, there is Mm -hmm. actually some weird settings that I once discovered. Uh, Google somehow lets me actually set that means invitations will disappear into a black hole and never be seen again. And you won't even know it's been sent to you. (laughs) Nothing will notify you. It will not appear in your thing, but everybody will think you have been invited uh, because on their end, it still looks like you you got the invitation. Um, So if this has ever happened to you, um, make sure you just go into your actual Google Calendar settings and check where your notifications are actually going to go because there is literally an option that basically says don't notify me and don't even show me anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I managed to fix it thankfully after it was when I, I think it was when I got the third one from a different company and suddenly went, okay, wait a minute. This isn't just, uh, this is me, isn't it? It's me. It's not them. It's me. (laughs) So it's just a warning. Check your settings. Check your settings. (laughs) How about you? That is a very good tip. Look, mine's another bit of content. Um, Play Wasteland 3. It is so much fun. It is available as part of the Xbox. um, What's it called when you get all the games? Game Pass Ultimate. Why can't I remember that? Thank you. It is. Let's try that. It is past part of uh, Xbox uh, Game Pass Ultimate. I was a Kickstarter on Wasteland 2. Um, that was a good five years ago now. Wasteland 3 is great. If you like that squad-based RPG, post-apocalyptic, cheeky sense of humour, some of it falls flat, not going to lie to you, but it's loads and loads of fun. It is going to be a massive time sink for me, and it's just a blast. And what have they changed up in... Three is it just everything's it's a little easier. I'm not going to lie; it's a little easier. I okay. could not imagine trying to play Wasteland Two on a console <laughs> using a controller. Yeah. I think that would have probably, uh, yeah, made me want to walk out into the wastes myself. <laughs> um, this is actually really smart. There's some not always the easiest controls, but some clever ones. Some things you have to work out for yourself. You're like, am I can? Oh, I can do that. Um, my favourite was you can set friendly fire to off. Uh, which I did, and then immediately managed to shoot one of my um, squad mates and kill them because friendly fire off only refers to ricochets or round missing. You can still hit them if they're in the in your shotgun range or something like Oops. that. So you've just got to work this stuff out for yourself. Sometimes it's fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm having a blast. I'm um, only a few hours into it, but again, uh, it's going to eat my time. I'm looking forward to it. Nice. 
And look, I wanted to give a shout out to one of our listeners. They chime in now and then with a few thoughts clearly after they've listened in to various episodes on Twitter. Baron 25 you've probably seen him floating around out there. Oh, yeah. But uh, recently, yeah, we got a great shout out uh, because they basically told us we're crushing it on our TV show recommendations. They were like, what we do in the shadows, uh, Watchmen, yeah. and now... Um, uh, Lovecraft Country. Lovecraft Country. Uh, they gave three big ticks to us for those recommendations. Um, so clearly they have great taste, just like us. So just a shout out. It. Uh, Baron, 25. Good to hear from you. And, of course, anybody else, feel free to give us a shout. Let us know what you think about our taste, whether it's terrible or wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, of course, yeah, we'll let you know that you are right or wrong based on if you agree with us or not. We're probably going to tell you that you're right, let's be honest. Um, And if you do want to track me down on Twitter, I'm at at Dr. Nick. That is D-R underscore N-I-C. That's where I do most of my social metering. Excellent. Uh, I'm at Seamus on Twitter. And, of course, there is at Byteside on Twitter as well and at The Byteside on Instagram. I'm not even going to bother mentioning the other one anymore. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you can email us via ask at biteside.com. There's also the newsletter. And I did do a big uh, newsletter earlier today after trying to absorb all of the discussions from yesterday about the Facebook stuff um, and trying to piece together uh, all the various random thoughts I've had in written form. So, of course, go and check out the Biteside newsletter. Uh, and that's it for this week. Nick, thanks again. It's always fun. And we will catch you next time. <laughs>